Before there was digital currency, there was physical currency. Before there was physical currency, there was barter and trade. And if necessity is the mother of invention, then the necessity of exchanging currency for goods and services means there was an opportunity for the invention of fraud. Fast forward to today, and investment fraud has remained a constant occurrence. Only the tactics continue to change. Join us for a special three-part series that explores the different frontiers of fraud, from the early days of investing and the origins of the Blue Sky Law, to the wild, wild west of non-traditional investments within the metaverse. This is part one, the wild west of investing and the origins of the Blue Sky Law. Hello and welcome to Real Life Regulators, a podcast aimed at educating investors using real life examples of investment fraud cases. You are currently listening to the first installment of a special three-part series highlighting the evolution of investment fraud. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. I'm Tina Kotsalas, Director of Investor Education and Consumer Outreach with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities, and I will be serving as one of your hosts. My co-host for this episode is John Icorn, Director of Compliance Enforcement and Anti-Fraud with the Kansas Insurance Department. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate that. And also with us today is Dan Klukas, my boss, who is the Kansas Securities Commissioner and Tom Treacy, who is our public information officer with our department, the Kansas Insurance Department. Before we get into this story, what do you think about just starting off by telling a little bit about who you guys are, Tom and Dan, and what you do? Dan, let's start with you first. Well, like we said, my name is Dan Klukas, and I'm the Securities Commissioner for the state of Kansas. Um, we, uh, I oversee our enforcement, compliance, registration, investor education, and the other areas within our our uh, office so glad to be here today appreciate you being here dan tom how about you what what, what tell us a little bit about yourself i'm the uh, public information officer for um the kansas insurance department i uh have been a blue sky history nerd since i've joined joined here uh love it um i helped dan with some of the investor education stuff and uh, some of those efforts involved kind of telling the history of the uh, uh, blue sky laws here in kansas Thank you for that introduction, Dan and Tom, and thank you again for joining us today. Our theme for this episode focuses on the first frontier of investment fraud. Dan, it's very appropriate that that Kansas is featured in this episode because we understand that Kansas was the very first state to address investment fraud and is the actual birthplace of blue sky laws. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I surely can. So um, in 1911, our legislature passed uh, our first version of the Securities Act um, that was brought forth by uh, Joseph Norman Dolly, who was then the banking commissioner. I think it's funny, we we look at the blue sky, we call them blue sky laws, and I think there's more uh, issues with where did that term actually come from than where the law actually originated. Uh, We find many other people taking credit for it, but in some of the texts that you read about uh, Dolly is what we'll call him, uh, the former banking commissioner, he just mentions that, you know, he was the one that termed it, 
Um, and it really came from some ma- rainmaking schemes uh, that he had seen many years earlier. Comes from saying that um, these speculative schemes have no more basis than many feet of blue sky. Uh, blue sky is great, but that's not what you want when you're hoping for rain. But there's a lot of history that comes before this law was passed, and it's very interesting. And I'd kind of like to turn you over to Tom Treacy, our unofficial historian on this, if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about the earliest frauds that took place in North America? Yeah, um, this, a lot of this happened during uh, what uh, was once called the uh, golden age of quackery. So think back to the medicine man that would travel around in, in wagons and would sell snake oil and uh, magical elixirs that uh, would cure whatever ails you. Uh, we had a lot of traveling uh, fraudsters going to rural parts of the country. And here in Kansas, one fraud that was the most, I guess, prevalent was uh, was traveling rainmakers. These were individuals that claimed they had a uh, magic uh, a chemical mixture that they could burn and put up in the sky and, and make it rain. They could they could you know induce uh, rain by um, you know by themselves. And um, there was one man by the name of Frank Melbourne, and he was the uh, rain wizard. He was from Ohio. He was the uh, the primary um, uh, I guess agitator in Kansas during uh, during these times. Wow, that is really interesting. When did this happen? Yeah. Well, it uh, happened around 1891. Uh, that's, uh, that's when Frank actually came to Kansas. But uh, a couple of years before that, uh, in 1887, Kansas uh, entered a prolonged drought. This drought lasted, gosh, almost five years. Uh, it was a story that was uh, national news. Uh, there was a lot of uh, farmers in the Midwest that were... Um, struggling during the drought. And Frank uh, Frank Melbourne, uh, who was in Ohio, he saw this and, and, and knew that we were struggling in Kansas. And he had already gained some fame, and uh, the media was following him. And, and at one time, he put out kind of a, uh, a statement, and he said, you know, my, my rainmaking skills are great here in Ohio, but where they'd really be, you know, useful, they'd be the best, is in Colorado and Kansas. And when, when we saw that, a, a town actually right on the Colorado-Kansas border of Goodland, Kansas, when they saw that, they said, we've got to, this guy to come on into town. Tom, how did Frank Melbourne get national attention back then? Well, uh, you know, a lot of it had to do with the, uh, the Civil War, uh, believe it or not. So rainmaking, artificial rainmaking, was something I was talking about throughout history, actually. Way back in the Roman days, they believed that big wars, big battles fought, brought big rains. Uh, Napoleon believed that his cannons uh, shook the, the rain from the clouds. Go all the way to the Civil War, they still had those beliefs. Actually, Fourth of July, there was a lot of Americans that believed back then that fireworks and cannonballs that we would uh, shoot off during Fourth of July, those would induce rain a couple days later. So in the Civil War, 1863, when we were fighting down the South, the South was going through an abnormally cold and wet spring. So you had all these muddy soldiers that were just getting uh, plumbed with rain. And they, they, you know, firmly believed, gosh, you know, I think my battling here is, is causing this rain. And 
these Civil War soldiers, when, when the Civil War ended, a lot of them took advantage of something called the Homestead Act, which that was passed in 18, or, yeah, 1862. And what that act did was it allowed the head of a household to move their family out to the western frontier, and they could claim 160 acres of land out there. And as long as they farmed on that land and stayed there for five years, they uh, could have the land for free. They just had to pay a small fee. Well, if you think about Kansas, uh, we are a farming state. A lot of our community leaders were farmers and former Civil War veterans. And so, you know, back to Goodland, a lot of those town leaders were men of the Civil War, and they believed in, in these rain-making uh, methods. So that's how Frank, in these stories of him, really kind of uh, made an impression on these community leaders. So, Tom, you talk about Goodland, Kansas, and the town's folks that were desperate for rain at that time. What was it in their efforts that was bringing this to their town? So Frank was uh, was kind of a celebrity at this point, and there was a lot of competition among a lot of towns to kind of bring him there to, to bring about his rainmaking skills. Goodman got together, and they raised money among the, the farmers there and, uh, and some of the town folk, and they raised the funds to pay for his travel to Goodland, Kansas. Not only that, they promised Frank became a town, they would promote this event far and wide, and they would give him a generous uh, contract that if he produced rain in the city of Goodland, he'd make some, uh, a pretty good payday. Uh, Frank agreed to come to Goodland. Uh, when he did that, the town paper, you know, hailed it. Now, he had the top headlines on it saying he's coming to town. You know, I think it said he's coming, he's coming. That was the headline of the Goodland paper. And they got all the, they got the governor, the Kansas governor actually committed to come out and see, uh, see Frank, uh, do his work at the, uh, the county fair there. They convinced the railroad stations to lower the ticket prices to come into Goodland to check out his, uh, to check out his rainmaking skills. So, uh, when Frank came to town, uh, he brought out his, uh, his brother and his manager. And uh, they set up shop in a building that the town built for him on the fairgrounds. And Frank began to uh, build the uh, burn these chemicals up in the sky. And his brother and manager would not let anybody in there to see him to do, do his work. And as he was build, uh, as he was burning these chemicals in the sky that day, when he was doing this, there was a uh, a southwest wind that was blowing thirty miles per hour, and it blew all his smoke to the northeast. Well, all the small towns, you know, throughout around Goodland knew that this big event was going on. And to the northeast, the towns there were getting drenched with rain. So they were telegramming back to Goodland, Kansas, hey, make that make that rainmaker stop. The 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 town folk got those telegrams and they 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 asked Frank to stop, which he did on a on a Friday. Uh, he quit for a little bit. They had him resume his work on Saturday. That Saturday, uh, a town again to the north uh, 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 east of uh, Goodland, it got a little bit of rain, and uh, Frank took credit for that. Unfortunately for Frank, he didn't uh, he didn't uh, produce any rain in Goodland, and he uh, didn't get paid. What happened was that the the the, the newspapers there, and he actually even the Chicago Tribune were hailing his success. There was headlines in the Chicago Tribune saying Frank uh, Melbourne did it. He made it rain out there in Goodland. And so the town folk considered it a success, even though they didn't get rain in their town. And they went to Frank Melbourne and said, hey, 
we'll give you $20,000 a year to produce rain for 40 Western Kansas uh, communities. And Frank said, oh, let me, let me think about it. I got to get on to my next town. And he kind of quickly left. And he never responded to them. So some local businessmen got together and they formed the first artificial rainmaking company. And they went out and they sought investments. They got doctors. They got lawyers. They got uh, bankers. And uh, and uh, they lined up uh, uh, the funds needed to launch this company. One of the things uh, that we know for sure is that this was all a scam, right? So how did Frank actually get it to rain where he thought he could get it to rain what how how was that all happening there was a, a part of the scheme that um was being perpetrated how did frank do that so it was actually later reported that frank uh had uh, had tools like barometers and he kind of would uh, measure the pressure system and whatnot and kind of try to time his uh his arrival and, and in time when he began his experiments based on the the barometric pressure and then and the weather pants associated with that. Uh, Frank also kind of was strategic. You know, that old saying, uh, April showers bring May flowers. Frank and the rainmaking companies, too, when they eventually get log- uh, launched, they, they they preferred to operate in, in the springtime when there was a lot more rain than later on in the summer. So. What made the rainmaking fraud an investment? So... The rainmaking companies, for one, you know, they had board directors and they had investors there in, in their company. They also franchised what they what they had. So these rainmaking companies, when Frank left town, they, they claimed to have Frank's special uh, elixir, I guess, and, and his, his machine. And these rainmaking companies, before they before they launched in Kansas, actually, they, they went down to Oklahoma and Texas. And they had success in Oklahoma, but they had greater success in, in Texas. And they actually sold their, their recipe and their, their business model to this company in Texas. And they ended up uh, bringing back, it was reported, $50,000 for that. And it didn't stop there. Later on, they were up in, I think, the, the uh, Dakotas. And uh, I think they got another uh, entity up there to buy into their uh, their company and then buy their special chemicals and, and their their methods. So what were the investors promised as a return? Well, as these blue sky companies uh, sent their um, employees out uh, throughout Kansas and actually the Midwest, these employees would go to uh, the small communities and they would promise with their machine if, if if you uh, if you raise the monies and, and and need it, I can come here with this machine and I will produce clouds for you that will bring rain. Well, more often than not, these individuals didn't produce clouds; they only produced blue skies. And basically, the the promise was: if you invest in us, we'll bring you rain. Most of the time, they didn't give them rain. So we know social media today plays a very important role in how fraud can spread from one investor to another. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but how did the scheme spread to different areas of the country back then? Was it newspapers? Was it word of mouth? Yeah, no, it was, it was the newspapers. And uh, funny thing is, is that these, these rain companies that formed the Goodland, one of the presidents of the rain company, he was hired on from the newspaper. So essentially, the newspaper in Goodland, the uh, company had the newspaper kind of in their pocket. Well, you can bet that every one of the headlines out of those Goodland newspapers were positive about the rain making companies. And, you know, occasionally these rain making companies did 
strike it right. They did use barometers. They did kind of try to look at the weather patterns and time their stuff there. And when that happened, you know, the media, the newspapers would, would report that and spread the good news. You mentioned the desperation of the farmers. Many of today's victims of securities fraud are targeted because they are facing life struggles. Did Frank target Kansas farmers only? Were they mostly the type of victims that we hear about for this scam or were there others? You know, yeah, Kansas farmers were his, his primary target. It goes back to, you know, him, him telling, uh, telling the, 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 the media that, hey, my skills are best used in Kansas. And then he, he, he bent that for the Kansas farmer. And then that's, those are the talents he usually visited with, with small communities. As this fraud unraveled, I remember reading something about the role of the Kansas banking commissioner. What role did that person play in uncovering this fraud? Yeah, well, the banking commissioner at that time was Joseph Norman Dolly, um, often returned, referred to as J.N. Dolly. And, uh, you know, he, he also came west like Frank did um, in 1865, or I'm sorry, 1885. And he settled in a small town about 25 miles uh, west of here in Topeka. But he, he was very involved in politics, but also as a he was a he was a founder of the town. He was very involved in politics. He was also involved in several banks. And he heard over and over about farmers um, and other people that would come in and say, hey, I invested money in this this thing or this operation. And now my money's gone. He tells a one story where someone that he knew closely spent a lot of money um, on something that was supposed to be in New Mexico. And he asked him for some guidance. And he told him, you should need to go to New Mexico and look at that. And of course, back then, it wasn't as easy as it is as now. And the gentleman had to hike like three or four days to find out that there was no uh, investment property in New Mexico with his name on it. So when he became banking commissioner, um, this was very near and dear to his heart. He, he was a banking commissioner and his politics, not to get political, but he was a progressive Republican. So the people really meant a lot to him. And to hear these stories over and over, he thought he needed to do something about that. And he introduced legislation that went through um, our capital. Um, it's kind of funny when you look at it, it was so many states and territories, especially in NASA, all kind of based some of their Security Act on our law. But our law almost didn't happen. Um, the vote was 63 to 62. So out of 125 uh, representatives, just one enough actually made that vote possible. But he was wow. able to get that through. And um, here we are today. So he saw the money flowing out of the banks. Is that correct? And that raised a red flag for him? Yeah, he did. And if I could quote him um, at one time, he said, if you go back 15 years, you'll see that all the state banks in Kansas then held less than 14 million of people's deposits. Now the whole 90 million. Now they hold 90 million and the national banks of the state, 60 million. And he he has a kind of a, a term. He says that's fat picking. So um, he was quite a character, as we can understand, too. But he really did care about the people that were being swindled uh, by fraudsters. And uh, he called them fakers. Were there any other red flags that the community should have been able to recognize back then, in your opinion? 
Yeah, there were. I mean, so when when uh, Dolly actually got the legislation through, this was in 1911. Um, we had been done with the rainmaking for probably 10 to 15 years before that because some irrigation came in and we didn't have to go after rainmaking like that. Um, but this was still still prevalent. You know, he talks about some of the same things we talk about today, mining, oil wells, and t- things like that. Um, it, it, he uh, In one article, it was, um, the first words are caveat emptor, which is buyer beware. He was a big proponent of, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. And those are the red flags just to, that at that time, because of course, there were publications out there that would talk about people making good investments and how to make good investments, but um, it was there wasn't the social media or the television or all the news, the quick news we have today. So often, sometimes these fraudsters could get several people involved in this scheme before we, they ever knew that um, there was a red flag to be waved. Yes. Absolutely. Frauds follow the headlines, as we say in in securities regulation. Do you see many differences between the investment frauds from the late 1800s and early 1900s to the frauds that happen today? You know, yeah, I do. But in my opinion, I think they're more similar than they are different. You know, the, the similarities of fraudsters are still out trying to take advantage of those people that may not know, may not have the knowledge or the capacity to in, investigate um, <clears throat> those uh, securities or investments. And, uh, of course, you know, people can can fall for schemes when you're thinking, hey, I'm going to make so much money, uh, uh, so many percentage on, on my money if I invest it. Um, you know, we really, as humans, we want we want to trust people. We really do. So it's really hard. You know, we, we want to trust people and we want to make money and we want to make it easily. So a lot of those schemes that were out there to then are out there today. Um, one of the things, and, and, you know, this is, I know in NASA, this is uh, a really big issue. We look at all the time our um, senior investments. And Dolly shared a story of a widow who came to him with $3,000. And back in those days, $3,000 was a pretty good sum of money. But that's what was left when her husband died. Um, it wasn't long before people found out that she had $3,000 and they wanted to, her to invest. Um, I believe he said somebody from a fraternal organization wanted her to invest. Well, Dolly wasn't, he, he was already before um, the Securities Act, before that came into play, he was already providing investment advice. And he looked into this person and found that they were a faker, in his words. And um, he advised her not to uh, invest with this person and put it in bonds. Um, you know, some of the things that are different now are social media, technology, everything's happening so quick that, you know, one of the things about the original Security Act, it, it involves the same three things we're talking about today. You know, we talk about the securities must be registered unless they're exempt. Um, people must be registered unless they're exempt. And, you know, and the, finally, the seller cannot con- commit fraud. So it's really the same. I mean, our, our act is kind of the same. Of course, their act was four pages. And I honestly, I don't know how many pages of Kansas, Kansas Uniform Securities Act is now. Um, but it's really based on the same thing because some of that fraud, some of that uh, investment fraud is still the same. 
That's really interesting stuff. It, you can clearly see that fraud's been really as around as long as time's been around. The way things are perpetrated today are much different than they were maybe back then, but it's still the same. I'm kind of curious a little bit, Tom. Can you tell me, we didn't hear what eventually happened to Frank Belber. Do you ever punish or what, what happened? That's a good question. And, I, you know, I'm still not able to find the answer to that. There's, there's two possible outcomes. Uh, in 1894, uh, the Denver Post, or one of the Denver papers, uh, reported that he committed suicide in his, uh, his hotel room. Um, then there's two other news articles after that that said, you know, Frank did an interview in 1895. And then the New York Times had an article in, I believe, 1901 that, uh, um, some uh, some uh, vigilantes, I guess, took him for ransom and were holding him in, a, I think, South Dakota or North Dakota. And uh, they were demanding his brother come out and pay the ransom. And uh, I, I, I don't know really kind of what happened to him there, but uh, I guess either you know, suicide or, or he was kidnapped. Well, it sounds like really that at that time with no Securities Act in place, that folks really just kind of took it into their own hands. So, obviously, the Securities Act, Commissioner, is a good thing that came along in 1911. Even today, we have an act that actually is punishable by federal uh, felony penalties. So, this is serious stuff for people that violate our Securities Act today. All right, so now we know what happened to Frank. What about these companies that came after Frank that really kind of stole what he was doing at the time to continue that that scheme? What happened to them? Are you asking if they were punished? Yeah, they were, well, you know what? They really weren't. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the only court case that, that is out there that's known about them was up in Nebraska, and the judge ruled in their favor. And, and I think they got a $500 settlement. Uh, but yeah, the judge said, I can't prove they didn't make it rain, but I can't prove they did. And so your contract said if rain fell, uh, you know, you'd have to pay. And, 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 and so they got their money from that, that case. Uh, the only other kind of, uh, thing I read was one of their rainmakers in, in, I believe, Nebraska. They, uh, they tied them to a post and said, we'll show you how to make it rain. And they sprayed them with a the hose. But the rainmaking companies really didn't, uh, were punished. So what led the rainmaking companies to their demise? You know, uh, it, there were three, three factors. Um, the first one was the drought ended. Uh, that ended in about 1893. So, uh, you know, we, were having, uh, we had rain again, and that was good. Uh, the second one was the press. Outside of Goodland was, was finally kind of turning uh, on these rainmakers, and you know there was a there was an editor for the Kansas Farmer who uh, labeled them rainmaker fakes and uh, said that they were uh, gullying the people uh, in fine shape. The, the the third one, and this is probably actually the, the most important factor, uh, it was the invention of the metal windmill. Believe it or not, uh, when they uh, when they made the metal windmill. That allowed for mass production of the windmill, and that led for, you know, windmills to pop up throughout the state of Kansas. And windmills are actually more of a water pump. They dig into the earth, and they bring water from the ground. So in Kansas, uh, around the time of the end of the uh, the rainmaking companies, uh, we enter the irrigation phase in the state of Kansas. And it's actually uh, referred to as the uh, the liquid gold rush. 
And uh, that liquid gold rush explains the second wave of scammers that came into Kansas. Uh, in the 1900 to 1910, Kansas was actually doing very well. And we had a lot of money. The farmers had a lot of disposable income because farm prices were high. We had irrigation going and uh, we had uh, we had rain. We had normal rain. And so a lot of scammers from out of the state viewed Kansas as a wealthy state. And you had these New York types coming into Kansas saying, hey, we're going to sell you these these stocks and these uh these mineral companies we have in South America, and you had these farmers saying, "Oh, you know that sounds great." They went to their local bank and took out money, and the bankers like, "What? What are you doing?" You know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm investing my money in this in this mine down in uh, South America uh, with the, with this guy from out of state. These bankers were not happy about that, and uh, they uh, actually uh, decided that something needed to be done. And they had an ally in Topeka, Kansas. He was the bank, uh, the state bank commissioner. And uh, they had decided to go to him for, for help with this problem. So basically, just like nowadays, follow the money. The scammers always followed the money. Did Frank Melbourne ever admit to wrongdoing? Uh, yeah, Frank um, uh, eventually admitted to, uh, to, uh, to his scam. Uh, he actually told a paper in, uh, in Ohio. Uh, that he, uh, he was a scam all along. The paper reported, and I quote here, in speaking of his experience as a rainmaker, Melbourne admitted that the whole thing was a humbug and that he never possessed any more power in that respect than any other man. He said that the American people liked to be humbugged and the greater the fake, the easier it is to work it. Melbourne made his fortune in a business and spent it like a prince. Wow, and well put, really, by him, because that's still so true today. It does appear, you know, the human being likes the thrill of an investment, the possibility of making it big. And uh, that's really what, what leads people to invest in, in things that they really couldn't do. I appreciate that, Tom. So, Commissioner, today uh, we know that we've got BrokerCheck as a, a tool that we can use as investors to, to look into a security or a person that we're wanting to invest with. But how could investors check out the legis- legitimacy of a person making an offer or an investment opportunity back then? Well, after the act was enacted, um, all uh, people selling securities had to register through the banking commissioner's office in a bureau that he had there. And it's been quoted that the first year they had 7,000 applicants and they only let about 49 of them through. Um, but even before that, he, he wasn't satisfied because apparently he tried to pass this legislation before, although we don't have evidence of that. But in 19, 1909, he actually started his own bureau within the Banking Commission to look at securities fraud or to actually, it was more a registration, right? Um, he sent out, a, you know, Tom mentioned that a lot of, you know, newspaper was the way back then. And there's a lot of things on Frank and other people in the newspaper. But the bank commissioner was smart in that, too. And he sent out a letter to it to from his office to all the uh, newspapers in the state. And he was basically saying, if someone comes to you with an investment, please reach out to me first. Write me a letter. We will investigate it. We will look into if they're making money. We were looking. into whether they're on the up and up. And I like the last part. He said, before investing, please write to this department 
and I will furnish it. He's talking about the investigation. So he he was ahead of his time. Um, but and, and I just you know being from Kansas, I, I we I know we here in this office we take a lot of pride in that it started here. And you know some of the things that he did are you know our our mission statement here at the can and I don't think I mentioned that the office of the securities commissioner is now a department or a division within the Kansas Insurance Department. But our mission here is to regulate, educate, and advocate. And those are the same things that uh, Dolly was doing so many years ago. Uh, it's really impressive to think how forward-thinking he was back then. Exactly. To come up with something that, you know, all of us uh, across the world really now practiced. And to see the technology, really, like you mentioned, you know, today we have broker check, but he used the newspapers to try to get that word out. Now we have the Internet to be able to use to to check on the same thing. Pretty impressive. So, Commissioner, one of the things, too, that we know that we're very proud of is that NASA, the organization, actually is is uh, rumored to have started here in Kansas, in Topeka specifically, where we sit now. Is that true? Tell well, us. yeah, it's more than a rumor. That's fact. So, in 1918, uh, there was a meeting of securities regulators in Chicago, and they decided they needed to have an organization, which became NASA, and it was organized in uh, Kansas in 1919, uh, right downtown, not too far from the Capitol. So that's pretty cool. And actually, they stayed there till the 1980s when they moved out to D.C. And actually, I found out this week, I, I think it's pretty neat that uh, in the 80s, and I don't want to give one of my employees age, but she used to answer the phone for NASA when their staff were away. And there were just a couple people that worked there until 1983 when they... Um, had their first executive director, and his name was Bruce Burden, who actually Bruce worked for us. I didn't know Bruce at the time, but Bruce worked for us. He was an accountant, and when he left there, he became the executive director for NASA. So, yeah, we have a lot of history that we're proud of in securities. Thank you so much for joining us, and more importantly, thank you for the work you do each day to protect investors. That's all for today's episode. From Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I'm Tina Kotsalos. And from Topeka, Kansas, I'm John Eichhorn. And if you have any questions about today's podcast or would like more information about the topics that we discuss, please email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. That's realliferegulators, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear future episodes, we'd really like you to join us um, to listen in on other Real Life Regulator podcasts. Please hit the subscribe button when you do so. NASA provides its information as a service to investors. It's neither a legal interpretation nor an indication of a policy position by NASA or any of its members. If you have questions concerning the meaning or application of a particular state or provincial law, rule, or regulation, please consult an attorney that specializes in securities law.